Welcome to the May episode of OMP Clinical Care Insiders, an original podcast series produced by the American Academy of Orthotists and Prosthetists. I'm Seth O'Brien, Vice President of Prosthetics at Wheeler Medical and Chair of the Academy's Scientific Societies Committee. As you may know, May is Mental Health Awareness Month, and I'm especially excited to welcome today's guest, John Brinkman. John is a certified prosthetist orthotist, an Academy Fellow with Distinction, and an Associate Professor of Physical Medicine and Rehab at Northwestern University's Prosthetics Orthotics Center in Chicago. John also serves as U.S. ISPO Treasurer, a past president of the Midwest chapter of the Academy, and he's written more than 60 articles for various publications, and perhaps most appropriate for Mental Health Awareness Month, John is chair of the Academy's Behavioral Sciences Society. Welcome to the podcast, John. Thanks for having me, Seth. Absolutely. So I, I want to kind of just start out and talk to you about your career path because, I mean, you've gone, if I'm not mistaken, clinical practice, teaching, research, and author on like a daily basis, it seems like. How did this entire journey kind of find you and how do you do all of it? Well, it, I started in what used to be a very common way of getting into the field, which was you were born into it. So my father was a prosthetist orthotist, went to Northwestern in the 60s. Uh, I have a brother who went there in the 80s. It's the OMP Iron Blood, I guess, right? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so I never really seriously considered another career path. I knew that it was a stable career. I knew it was enjoyable, interesting. And I grew up not knowing anyone else whose father did that. So I, I knew before going to college that that's what I was going to pursue. When I was graduating from high school in 1986, the standard for entry level into the profession changed to a requirement for a bachelor's degree. And I decided to go uh, to UT Southwestern rather than complete a bachelor's degree and then go to Northwestern. So I was sort of the, the one person in the family who didn't go the Northwestern route. Were there a lot of four-year programs at that point or were you one of the first? I remember applying to NYU at the time, was still functioning as a school, and uh, University of Washington. Okay. And so for my remember, those were the three, those are the three I applied to anyway, and they may have been the only three. And UT Southwest was, I got an acceptance there, and um, so I ended up moving to Dallas, had a very good experience in that program, and uh, graduated in 1990. You started in clinical practice, I'm assuming. Who, who were some of your, your mentors or who kind of got you involved in different things within the field? You know, in addition to just growing up and going into work in the evenings and weekends with my dad and, and then in high school being a technician, you know, in the afternoons after school, I would do shadowing with my brother who had recently graduated from Northwestern's program. So I would kind of go along and do the typical things that people who shadow do, like write down measurements and that sort of thing. So he, my brother was an early mentor and continues to be because he's still in the field. One of the first jobs I had out of school was with Dennis Clark. At the time, it was Dale Clark Prosthetics. And that made a really big impression on me in terms of how patients were treated, treated orthotically, but also treated personally and then just the, the level of professionalism and interaction with others really m made an impression on me. So I would say Dennis was an early mentor. And then much later in my career, since I came to Northwestern, uh, working with John Michael. 
made a really big impact. Just there was one of the motivating factors to taking that job. And I was able to work with John, even in the classroom setting. John was doing a lot of teaching at that time. And that chance to work that closely with someone with his skill set and reputation really made a big impact on me. Sure. And then you're working now as a as an educator, right? Yes. In, at this point in time in, in your story. And then how did you come to be involved with the academy and some of the, just the number of things that your name pops up in uh, across the field in general? I first was invited to get involved by Kevin Carroll. I was working for Hangar at the time, and Kevin was in the office that I was managing doing a, a clinic. And he just asked me, well, what sorts of things are you interested in? And I wasn't sure if it was a trick question or you know, what, what the right answer was. <laughs> and then I realized he was asking about academy involvement. And at the time, I think he was on the board and in your role, which was overseeing the societies. And as anyone who knows Kevin knows, is a very positive person and has a great reputation. So just to have that invitation to get involved from him really made me take that seriously. So I just mentioned being interested in GATE. After that, Kevin connected me with Dr. Terry Rosenbaum Chu and Sue Spaulding, who were leading the society at that time. So I want to circle back just a little, because at this point, are you an educator or are you working in clinical practice? No, this was I was managing an office for Hangar, not really done anything in terms of involvement. I'd always been an academy member, thanks in part to employers along the way who paid for that membership. So I've, I've always appreciated that employers supported that involvement. But even when they didn't, I would just continue that on my own. So I'd always been involved in the academy. I'd always been interested in education and just had not really had the opportunity or taken that step. So getting that invitation from Kevin was really a key point. And starting that interaction with Terry and Sue in the Gate Society was really my first introduction to collaborating with others at that level. It was just a really good orientation into volunteering with the academy and seeing what impact could be made. And then how long until you ultimately ended up in the teaching role as an educator in OMP? So I, I've been at Northwestern just over 11 years. Like I said, I've always had an interest in teaching and kind of pursued that outside of OMP. Back when I was in school at UT Southwestern, I remember talking to Susan Cap about future plans and thinking of a PhD. And so I always had interest in academia and in teaching one-on-one -on -one as well as group kind of interactions. And I saw the ad for the Northwestern position and I said to a friend of mine, like, I don't, I don't know if I really should do this, if I'm willing to make the change. And she said, well, you know, they probably won't really be interested in you anyway, you might as well, there's no harm. In <laughs> so she was, she was doing the, the Mark Twain, the picket fence kind of, well, you really don't want to paint the fence, right? So sure. yeah. reverse psychology. So then they wanted an interview and she said the same thing. Well, you know, they probably won't hire you anyway. There's no harm in doing the interview. <laughs> and uh, so sort of prodded me along. And when the job was offered, I live about 82 miles from work, which is in downtown Chicago. And I just said to myself, I can't imagine doing this commute. And so I turned it down. And after thinking about it, middle of the night, got back up and emailed John Michael and said, can I have a mulligan? <laughs> to that question differently. And he said, well, that I was hoping that would happen. And so anyway, really, it was really good timing. 
and the Northwestern was transitioning to the master's program. So I taught in three certificate programs that first year and then was part of making the transition to the master's. The curriculum had already been developed and it was a matter of implementing it, kind of planning what that would look like. So it was a really interesting time to be there and yeah. a lot of developing new material and redoing some of the traditional materials. So it was really a fun time to be there. This is a loaded question, obviously, but just a real short kind of snapshot. As somebody from the inside, how do you think the transition to the master's level program has gone or is going? I mean, it's still a bit of a hot topic for a lot of, especially older clinicians, but w what does that look like from the inside from you? Uh, yeah, and Northwestern was one of the last schools to make that transition. So the deadline, I think, was 2013, and that's when our first master's class was in sort of the middle of their program. There were so many applicants who were interested in getting in before the master's requirement. So so we actually had a lot of students who were waiting for those final certificate programs or waiting to get into that. So there was no lack of interest in applicants. And I always felt that many of those students would have been better off waiting for the master's program in the sense of, you know, they have a career ahead of them and the standard is just switching to the master's. I kind of felt like the decision I made when the transition was to the bachelor's was something I never regretted because now I have a bachelor's degree that has served me well throughout my career. Yeah, so the, to that question about the transition to the master's, I had a student ask me early on if I thought that the fact that they had a master's degree would earn them any respect clinically. Mm -hmm. And I said, uh, no, I don't think so. I, I don't think that most referral sources have any idea what our level of training and preparation is. I don't think they have any idea of the distinctions between different levels or types of training or certification. But I said, I think getting a master's degree will equip you to have the skills clinically and professionally to earn the respect of referral sources and others. So I think that whether or not a master's degree is actually required to make arms and legs and braces is a different question than what is our role on the healthcare team. And to be sure. one of the only professions in the room or in clinic that has less than a doctorate is the situation we're in now. OT, PT have transitioned to doctorate level. Um, so we're one of the allied health professions with the least amount of education and good or bad, that's the environment we're working in. And I think having a master's level education better equips our graduates to work in that environment. Sure. Yeah, I would agree. And I think, you know, just very briefly, because this could be a whole episode on its own, but I think one of the areas that gets expanded in that didactic portion for the master's level is the research focus. You know, I remember that was a, a certainly just a blip, you know, making sure that we could digest and understand and use research appropriately. But I think it goes into much more detail now, which is important and ways that you can think about, you know, how, how you're just systematically looking at the research that's out there or how it should continually evaluate what you're doing and why you're doing it, right? Yeah, I, I think that's a really good way of saying it. Most of our students, and I'm guessing in other programs too, come to the program with an interest in clinical work and not research. And I think the, the research curriculum ends up being viewed not as positively, mm -hmm. not as relevant as the clinical, and I completely understand that. I always tell the students I mentor that, um, you know, I'm always going to be a clinician. I'm always going to land on that side of any discussion or debate, but they need to understand how to evaluate and use research, even if they're not going to be doing it. 
So I thought you stated it really well that there's a way of thinking that researchers have and contribute to what we do that is really important. There's a level of thinking deeper and then more systematically, and that's something we all ought to be doing. So whether we're actually doing research, applying the scientific method of evaluating our results and trying different things and being very aware and thinking at a high level, those are skills that are very relevant clinically. You bet. So back to this, the Behavioral Sciences Society. So founded in 2017, right? And you were the, if, if I'm not mistaken, kind of the leading champion of that at the moment. What really spurred the interest in BSI? Well, full transparency, I'd never actually heard that term until coming to Northwestern. And then we had some elements in the curriculum related to that. I'd always been interested in psychology and, and so the soft sciences versus the STEM side of things, but never had really heard of behavioral sciences until beginning to teach at Northwestern. And because of my interest in those areas, I asked to be involved in teaching with that. And initially it involved collaboration with some outside professionals, like a clinical psychologist and some others. And then I started doing more reading and getting familiar with those topics. And when we transitioned to the master's, we had an opportunity to take a curriculum that had been maybe three or four hours of behavioral science and convert that to two full classes, so two quarters of behavioral science. So I really had a chance from the ground up, based on NCOPE's or KHEP's requirements and standards, to build a curriculum in areas that I thought were important for own plea clinicians and, again, working with some collaborators. And that's stayed pretty consistent over the years that I've taught it. I've added additional content or updated some things. But there are some really important topics that need to be covered for anyone yeah, sure. interacting with patients and especially. So we cover things like views of disability and a big, big issue is how to encourage the motivation of patients to use their device and some other topics that are really key. But that was, that's been a very interesting area for me and an area of personal growth to develop that curriculum and follow that interest I've always had and then to pass that on. The students. How do, you, how do you think it, for the, for sort of the average clinician or somebody who's not as familiar with the field and, and they may say, ah, oh, behavioral sciences, I don't see the direct connection to what I do every day. How do you think that translates to them? What would you say to them to highlight how involved they already are with BSI, even if they don't realize it? Yeah, I think that's a really key point. One of the things I've tried to do from the beginning, especially, you know, teaching entry level, teaching students who have gone to be residents, to try to give them an appreciation and a respect for the fact that a good clinician has always had skills in these areas. They've always been good at patient interaction, that whether it was back in the days of almost the tradesman and you know, prior to much academic training, putting bigger, fancier $10 words to it doesn't mean that other people weren't doing that and aren't doing that. They may go to a clinic where somebody is not as educated as them and it doesn't use all the same terminology, but they're practicing those skills. Sure. And that's an important thing to recognize. It's about connection with the patient in an appropriate and helpful, supportive way. I think it may be one of the societies that many clinicians or many members of the academy or, or just professionals across the field just don't quite understand the connection as readily, yep. right? And I think they're much more involved than they realize. Yeah, we actually had discussions um, I was on the board at the time, on the academy board, 
And we had discussions about whether the title should be changed or the name of the society should be changed because of that, that people wouldn't necessarily know what it was. I haven't heard a lot of feedback from clinicians about confusion on that. Could be that I'm not hearing from the people who are confused. <laughs> um, but one thing I worried about was whether clinicians, particularly with more experience, would be skeptical. And again, I think people sort of select in or out based on their interest. And I've certainly heard comments are sort of disparaging of this area of practice. But overwhelmingly, the response has been from clinicians at any level of experience and age. I've had people affirm very strongly that the importance of this and that that's something that they've always valued and hoped that there would be more information on. So I think like any area of practice, there's different levels of interest in that topic. But overall, the, the response has been very positive. And the Academy has been incredibly supportive and promoting the activities of society. So there's been a lot of opportunities to get the word out. You mentioned collaboration earlier. And, you know, over the last six or seven years um, that you've been involved with the B Behavioral Sciences Society, what, what are some of the bigger pieces of work that you've accomplished or some of the, the offerings that maybe have popped up in that last, you know, several years or so that uh, really stand out to you? Well, because my interest in this was relatively late, or my knowledge of it was fairly limited when I first got involved, I really relied on collaboration with other professionals who were trained and experienced in that area. So clinical psychologists and others who had done this or do this as part of their job, focus on these aspects of care. There were a lot of resources at Northwestern through the med school for continuing ed that I was able to participate in. So I got involved in the society with uh, one of the early collaborators was Dr. Wegner from Johns Hopkins, and he's a psychologist. He had done several projects for the Academy and the Amputee Coalition, and I connected with him, and he, he is a phenomenal presenter, very passionate, very engaging with his audience, and we worked on several behavioral science sessions at the Academy or symposia and did a certificate program that the Academy offers. So that's been a really helpful thing for me to have someone with that level of experience. Absolutely, yeah. And then I always look for people who are either doing research in this area or have an interest and ask them to get involved. So Dr. Meg Science from University of Delaware, and then one of her PhD students, Samantha Stauffer, who is a CPO in a PhD program. And Dr. Wagner and I did a session last year on pain. It was really their content for the symposium. And I moderated it, but that was a phenomenal collaboration. It's probably one of the most rewarding I've done, where every speaker spoke on what they said they were going to in the time they said they were going to it all fit together. It was really phenomenal. I'd love to get that band back together. But that was a really good one. I, that one sticks yeah. out to me. And, and I believe that one's still available online on, on the Academy's online yeah. learning. Center. I didn't realize it had been recorded, but I was very happy to find that the other. That's a good example, too, of a topic that even if someone is skeptical about behavioral science, if you say to any clinician, do you ever have patients come in and they're complaining that something hurts and you can't see any evidence of it on their skin? They're not clear in what makes it hurt, get better, get worse. You know, what do you do with that? Do we just write it off? Do we just say they're complaining, they're malingering, they have some mental health issue, which they may. But it was really helpful to get the perspective of pain that recognize it as, you know, pain is different than suffering. And all pain is in your head, right? That's where all pain gets processed, whether it's perceived or whether it's in a consequence of tissue damage. 
So not all pain involves damage, right? Or at least tissue damage. So all those factors, and we have our ways clinically. And I've gotten advice over the years, like don't mention the word pain, because that just makes people think of pain. Talk about discomfort. We have these strategies that get passed on, but when we look a little deeper at topics like that, you realize just how we talk about it and how we interact with patients about it is part of the treatment and will affect the outcome. It really is fascinating. Yeah. I, such a such a rabbit hole you could go down on yeah. that regard. Yeah. You know, obviously with May being Mental Health Awareness Month, I think one of the hot topics that I've been hearing about a lot lately is burnout. And if I'm not mistaken, I think that you guys have a webinar or something around burnout coming up. Is that right? Uh, yes. On May 17th, we have a webinar that the Academy is offering, and the topic is burnout. Gracie Finko, who's another CPO, I think just recently completed her PhD, and Jerry Stark, who everyone knows, CPO, PhD, they'll be leading that webinar. But they both have done presentations and some research on burnout. And the idea will be just to give some help to practitioners on preventing, recognizing, managing burnout in yourself and others. I think that's a really hot topic currently, partly because of, I think, COVID. Everyone experienced more burnout or more stressors. I've certainly had several times in my career where I was significantly burnt out. And recognizing, for me, recognizing the factors that were external to me and the factors that were internal that contributed were so important. And they're both. And some we can control and some we can't. Sure. But learning to manage that is such an important part of continuing to provide the help we want to help uh, offer to others. Yeah. And when you're not aware of what's happening, I think that you can just feel like you have no control over it or you feel like it's worse because how do you get out of this bad situation? And when you can start to understand what's happening and that you can help it or control it, it would make sense to me that that is just a huge factor in successfully navigating, um, you know, right. areas of burnout, right? I mean, they're going to happen no matter what, but it's, it's getting through them unscathed. Right. With the Behavioral Sciences Society, what else is on, on the horizon? Is there is there anything else coming up that uh, you would want to point people to? Or are there areas of need from the society or, or the profession as a whole that somebody who might have an interest can uh, get involved with you? Yeah, well, first of all, if someone does have an interest, um, they reach out to me and just let me know sort of what they're interested in. That usually happens a couple times a year. It includes students and residents as well as experienced clinicians. We'll find something for you to do. Uh, we try to contribute an academy today when that comes up in our cycle, a uh, symposium at each academy meeting, and then any additional thing we're asked to do. So we the webinar on burnout, we're doing journal club that Michelle Hall organizes through the academy. Pretty much any area of interest someone has in this broad field of behavioral science, we can find some outlet for that. We're already starting to plan for the organized session for next year's academy meeting. And at this point, I'm working with a Tyler DeLeo, who's part of the society leadership, and a few others on a pediatric focus. So what are the Great. skills needed to work with pediatric patients of each age level, from adolescents and young adults, and talking about some interpersonal skills and clinical skills that work with that patient population or those populations. When do you conduct the John Brinkman writing classes on how to author for uh, pieces a week? Well, <laughs> and how much do you charge? <laughs> yeah, so I'll tell you, that has been, that's always been an area of interest for me. 
And it's taken a, a long time even for me to feel comfortable with my own art in that area to whatever extent. Sure. Uh, you can, it's good or bad art. I'll tell you, I enjoy reading them for sure. I, I mean, thank you because you do a great job and, and I always enjoy it. It's it's almost like an expected, you know, staple of whatever magazine I open. If if you're not there, I feel uh, like a piece of me is missing. Yeah, I, well, I appreciate you saying that. I'm glad it has that effect. I basically pick topics that I'm interested in. Many of them come up in class and in discussions with students. And the, the cool thing is almost any topic that can come to your mind, someone has probably done a PhD on it and for sure has done research on it. So a lot of the topics just come out of those sorts of questions that come up in my mind, like what about humor? People use humor in an encounter. How does how does that work? What's the research on that? And again, I'm a clinician, so I'm very strongly committed to connecting it to relevant situations. I often think of a situation from my experience that went good or bad, and then start there. But it's a discipline and a skill, and they always say that about writing. I always feel at the beginning, like I have no idea where this is going to go. And I've gotten better at just word salad on paper and, <laughs> and starting to edit it. So, um, and the editors at the OMPH are very gracious and in, in waiting on me to finish things, but <laughs> it's really been an interesting, it, it's a definitely an avocation and to have, be able to do that, contribute it professionally with that is really rewarding. Well, thanks for doing it. I, I certainly enjoy reading it. Um, and it's been great catching up with you and talking to you. Uh, I thank you for all of your efforts within the field as a whole. Well, thanks a lot. And the same to you, Seth. I appreciate your leadership on the academy and societies. It's a, a great opportunity professionally to be involved. I hope other people do that. Agreed, for sure. Well, thanks for joining us, John. And thanks to all of you for listening to this episode of OMP Clinical Care Insiders. Hope you'll join us each month as we continue our conversation with key voices in the OMP community discussing their area of clinical care and sharing personal experiences as professionals in that specialty. Be sure to subscribe to our podcast on Apple, Spotify, Google, or wherever you listen to your favorite podcasts. And don't forget to check out the Academy's other podcasts for OMP professionals, the award-winning OMP Research Insights with Dr. Steve Gard and OMP Rising, a podcast created for emerging professionals in our field. For more information on the American Academy of Orthotists and Prosthetists, visit us online at onp.org. Thanks for listening, and we'll catch you next time.